I'm Karen London, and you're tuned into the Backyard Pet Talk with Shannon Riley Corner podcast. Hi, Karen. Welcome. I'm super excited. I've been looking forward to having this talk with you. Um, like I joked with you a little before, I've kind of secretly stalked you, not on purpose, but as you've worked with Patricia McConnell and just watching your career, um, you know, through because we've been in this career together, probably for a lot longer than we even realized, you know, um, just being in different different avenues. So I'm really excited to have people learn a lot about different avenues of being a behaviorist, you know, because, um, you know, there's veterinary behaviorists and there's dog trainers and we don't really have to get into all the details of the legality of our career or, you know, our career choice is not like you said before we started regulated and there's, but there are things that people can look for to know if they're getting a person who does have the education and the knowledge to really give you the best resources for your in our case, dog, but it could be any animals. You know, there's a lot of us work with multiple species. But um, so before we get started, just so people kind of know a little bit about you, could you tell us a little bit about um, your your uh, path, you know, starting with whether it was before Patricia McConnell, during Patricia McConnell, and, and then get into what a cab is and that kind of stuff. So could you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. And first, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I love to talk with, you know, colleagues about dog training and behavior. So I'm very happy to be here. So thank you for the invitation. Um, well, I was in uh, graduate school at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, I was working on my PhD and I was studying uh, tropical social wasps. And uh, my master's degree was about um, um, two species of wasps that live together. And I was looking into what benefits or costs that were involved with that. And then my PhD was about defensive behavior in tropical social wasps. And while I was at Wisconsin, there was a bit of um, a teaching assistant snafu. I can't remember exactly what happened, but I think somebody was in a horseback riding accident and they were supposed to be TAing like ornithology, but it was a field class. And so they couldn't do it because they were on crutches and they couldn't be out in the field. So the person that was supposed to TA Patricia McConnell's class moved to the ornithology class, and I was going to be TAing, you know, a 101 basic class, but her class was called uh, Human Animal Relationships, Biological and Philosophical Issues, and someone looked at my undergrad transcript at UCLA and saw I had one philosophy class, and they were like, oh, okay, like, well, uh, that sounds good, and I met Matri Patricia, and we, you know, hit it off, and, and I became her TA, and was a little last minute, but, you know, whatever, someone had a broken leg, and here you are, um, and so while I was in that uh, TA in that class, um, which I had not, never taken because it, um, you know, it, it was an undergrad class, I uh, was thinking, wow, this is really, I'm so interested in species interactions and I'm so interested in aggression and defensive behavior, you know, anything with weapons. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, what I'm really interested in is the inhibition. Like there's so many species, especially predatory ones, wolves and wasps and just so many that um, they could hurt each other, but they mostly don't. I mean, there there is some aggression within species, but considering the weapons that wasps and wolves have, they don't hurt each other that often, not on a daily basis. And so I was thinking, wow, this class is really about different species interactions, like humans and these other, a lot of domesticated species we talked about. And that, you know, that is a biological relationship, just like the wasps I was looking into. And then I knew she had a business where she, <clears throat> her client caseload was mainly aggression stuff. And I became interested in that. And I started volunteering in her dog training classes at Dog's Best Friend. And, you know, eventually became an assistant instructor and then an instructor. And then um, she hired me to be her, um, like the aggression, uh, to see aggression cases when she worked on her first sort of really big book, The Other End of the Leash. Mm -hmm. uh, so she could take time off to be able to work on that in large blocks of time. So she trained me to see her aggression cases 
Um, and fun fact, there's a picture of my dog and of me and my husband, but not all in the same photos in that book. So that's fun. Oh, cool. I'll have to go back. I, I have both the book and the audio because I have read it. I, that book, I actually, well, I just had this like crazy memory of being in an, in an airplane. I don't remember if I was listening or reading it, but uh, because it was just, it was such a great, it was a great book of transitioning to of really getting people to look at dogs emotionally rather than just as like scientifically, you know, and it, it was such a great book and it still is. Yeah, no, I love that book. I mean, I love how it really brings so much of the idea of ethology, you know, the behavior of animals mm -hmm. into dog training and interacting with dogs. And I, I feel like the field sometimes completely emphasizes operant conditioning mm -hmm. um, that, you know, you can teach anything with proper reinforcement and that's true, but there are some things are natural tendencies. It's why most people will agree that uh, they've had very different experiences teaching their dog to do agility, which is fun and takes use of makes use of a lot of dogs' natural physical abilities, but isn't something they actually naturally do to respond to someone else telling them where to go and you know weave poles. Hello, not natural. Right, right. Opinion. I um, teach agility, so yeah, totally weave poles. No way. What? No dog thinks that's fine. Yeah, not a dog, there, but. <laughs> but teaching dogs to do nose work, to do what they naturally do. I mean, obviously, you still have to do the training, but it's sometimes it's, it's really interesting teaching dogs to do what we want them to do versus what they want to do anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I just think, so I think her book about ethology and what comes naturally to dogs, the way they respond to body motion and leaning and, um, you know, what, how scent impacts them. I, mm -hmm. I really, I really love that book. I, I was working for her when she was writing it. And, you know, I remember when the box of the books first came and we were all <laughs> around and it was just so exciting, but, um, and of course I had read, you know, some drafts of some things that she'd ask those of us working for her to just, you know, look at and things. Cause just if they were interested in writing, um, but it's a book I reread every few years, you know, totally. And you know, and it's, I mean, and sometimes, um, reading dog books for me is fun. And sometimes it feels like homework, even if I'm enjoying it, like it can be mm -hmm. like, I read scientific papers and I love reading them, but sometimes it's like, yeah, the brain's not ready. Um, exactly. Like, totally. Yeah. It's like, okay. Like, yeah, I feel like I'm eating my spinach kind of a thing. Like, I know this is good for <laughs> exactly. Me, but, um, but her books and that one, I think more than any of the others um, is, you know, it's always easy to read and I always get things out of it and I always enjoy it. I think she's just such, I mean, and you would probably agree with this. I mean, I've seen her speak and I have met her just in, in conferences and things like that, not as an intimate as yours, but she's just a loving kind person too. And that, and she loves, and she, she I met, I really looked at her when I was modeling how I wanted to be as a trainer, like, not just like I'm teaching my dog this skill, but I really want to like, see what this dog needs and, and making sure that we're getting all their needs met. And there's just something about how she interacts that I just think is, and she's like magical with that. So I think yeah, a great I, mentor. Yeah, I grew up so lucky to have her as a mentor. That was wonderful. Um, I mean, I never planned, I planned to go into academics, um, into, you know, to be a professor and do research and I really just found that after teeing in her class and working for a business that I, you know, completely changed course. And, um, I mean, I still teach at the university occasionally I'm adjunct at Northern Arizona university, but, uh, it's not, you know, it's not a full-time professor, not the normal academic job, but, um, she really is like warm and genuine and caring. And I think that's, I mean, besides the fact that she's so brilliant, I just think that authenticity of the caring is a large part of why she's so you know, well-respected and liked in the field, which, you know, is great. Exactly. I, and Emily, so you were talking about being in academics and obviously I didn't know until just now that you were into wasps when I had no idea that was your, your focus. So then you ended up becoming a cap and can some people that are listening may not have 
any idea what a cab is, what's involved with being a cab. Can you explain what the certification is and how you go about it? And just tell a little bit about what a cab is. Sure. Well, um, it, it's CAB. It's an abbreviation C-A-A-B for Certified Applied Animal Behaviorist. And uh, it's the cer a certification um, in conjunction with um, the Animal Behavior Society, which is an academic society. It's where, you know, all professors that study animal behavior go for sort of their summer meeting to discuss research. And we're in uh, those of us that are CAB, Certified Applied Animal Behaviorist, are in the applied um, side of that. And in order to be a CAB, you need to have uh, a PhD in um, you know, a biological science that's related to behavior. Um, and you need to have, um, I think, 30, hour, 30 credit hours of coursework related to you know, ethology or learning behavior or, um, or psychology and um, three letters of recommendation from Animal Behavior Society members um, and, uh, and then five years of professional experience working in applied animal behavior. Um, another option is to be a veterinary behaviorist who's board certified in behavior um, and has, I, I forget exactly how many years of experience they need, um, but it's basically a certification that ensures that people with this certification have training, education, and experience with animal behavior and and with all with all sides of it, with scientific research, uh, with applied practice, and with uh, coursework. And that that's um, a pretty unusual combination, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely um, how I know. I mean, if there's not a lot of cabs and there's not a lot of veterinary behaviorists in the whole world, really, you know, I mean, it's every year there's more because they take the certification. So how many now would you say in, in the United States or the world of cabs? And you might even talk about veterinary behaviorists just because we mentioned those how, like, just so people realize it's like, it's a lot of work to get there and there's not that many out there so that when they see somebody, like if they met you in Arizona, they would realize that you're not like just the average dog trainer. Like how many are there? Well, I looked up in the directory for the certified applied animal behaviorist um, and there were 40 listed um, plus three that are emeritus, meaning that they're retired, but they, and so they're still sort of have a claim to having had the certification, but they can't see clients because they're not, you know, they don't necessarily have to maintain their insurance and that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. blah, 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 legal stuff. Um, <laughs> and, um, and there's also um, 18, there were 18 associate cabs, a, a cabs. And those are people that have similar qualifications, um, but not as uh, rigorous. They, they have a master's degree and not a PhD. Um, so that's different. Um, I honestly don't know how many veterinary behaviorists there are. Um, I know are a couple of years ago, there were fifth, only 50, but I haven't checked the veterinary. So, but just so you know, you're talking 40, you know, maybe, maybe if I'm being generous, there's a hundred veterinary behaviorists now in the world. Um, I mean, I think I might be being generous, but I haven't looked at those numbers recently either. So, um, and there could be more who just don't happen to be on the directory. <laughs> totally, exactly, exactly. But it's, it's a small number. And I mean, part of it is that um, you need to maintain membership in the Animal Behavior Society. You need to renew you renew your certification every five years. You have to maintain a um, um, like um, uh, like liability insurance. Uh, you have to attend Animal Behavior Society meetings and present on a regular basis. So there are a relatively small pool of people that would be qualified to apply. And even from with within those, not everybody does for various reasons. Exactly. So. Um... What would be good reasons, you know, um, for someone to be looking like if they're having a dog problem and, and maybe they've seen trainers or maybe they're like this, or maybe they have trainers who 
aren't say, I can't see you. It's too, you know, expensive or whatever. What are some reasons that people might see like hire us a, a cab or a veterinary behaviorist over going, you know, just to a basic, you know, trainer that has maybe a CBDT or something like that? Well, um, um, in terms of, of seeing a, a cab, um, if you see them, you, I mean, our field is so unregulated, uh, dog training and behavior. I mean, anyone can hang out a shingle and call themselves a behaviorist. Um, you know, and I mean, it's, I often think, I mean, I don't, I'm not a historian, but I often think about like when people would say that in, in, you know, in ages past, you know, the barber was also sort of like a surgeon, you know, I mean, to be an attorney, I mean, think, I think Abraham Lincoln was an attorney, but he didn't actually ever go to law school. He just like studied some books and called himself an attorney or something like that. You know, weird. I mean, and if he passes the bar, you know, in this day and age, someone could still do that. Like, you know, like the guy from catch me if you can, but yeah, no, it's a little wild. Um, so I, I think that, um, I mean, there's certainly many people that do wonderful work with or without various certifications. There's no Mm -hmm. doubt about it, but, um, I mean, I think if you consult with a cab that you know they have the knowledge, education, and experience, just it's really necessary to help people and their pets and and not harm them because they they really have a good grounding in the theoretical aspects of animal behavior, how research is done. And that's a big thing because people are often talking about science-based training now and they read a research article and then they do something based on it. And I go look and read at the research article and I'm like, well, the statistics are 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 sort of bogus, or the sample size is a problem, or there's all sorts of problems with, with evaluating the critical thinking and knowledge and education to evaluate scientific papers. There's a lot on companion animal research that's good, but there's a lot that I wouldn't base anything I do because I read the study and see various flaws in the methodology. So someone that can, can do that. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to have these degrees to do it, but this certification shows that you've had the education that should allow you to do that. Um, and, you know, understanding how to conduct empirical research, like actual research that's legitimate um, and um, being able to disseminate accurate information themselves. I personally feel like in the work that I do, so I, I've, I've um, two certifications. I'm a cab and I also have the um, CPDT dash KA um, yes. certification, which I've had since I think 2002, I think mm-hmm. I became a, a cab in 2003 Um and a, a, a CPDT dash KA, which was just CPDT at that time. Exactly. Um, I did that to the first test they had with that too. So yeah, it was, there was no KA, there was no KSA or anything at that time. Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we're both, both old, old timers. <laughs> exactly. Been around a block a few times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, like what I think about is I remember that when I, uh, took that exam, I, uh, I don't think I had a cell phone yet. Like that's how long ago. It was, oh, you know? totally. I did it. I did. Mine was, um, two weeks after September 11th and I did it the first one in New York and um, everybody, and I had had a scholarship to go to that um, APDT conference as a vet tech for doing puppy classes. And so everything was paid for. So I was like, and I already had the experience. So I did the test. So I did the very, very first test, which was paper, you know, no computers. And, um, but it was a lot of people didn't show because they didn't want to fly. Let me tell you, it was the most empty plane I have ever been on. Any safest I ever felt on a plane was going that weekend. Yeah. Those were crazy times though. Yeah. But it was a long time ago was there was no computers. There was, I mean, we had email, but it was not, that was about the most technology we had. And I think it was still dial up. Yeah. I'm not sure about that from, but I know I took it. I must've taken it the year after you. I took it in Portland, um, which is where my family lives. So that was really nice. Um, But I, uh, I, so I have one training certification and one behavior certification plus my PhD, which is a degree, not a certification, but I think people, when they hire me kind of consider it like, oh, okay, that's another legit thing. But I really 
love the idea of working with people that are know a lot about behavior and about training. And of course they're closely related, but I think that it's really important to understand the principles, to be able to evaluate dogs, to have a lot of experience, to understand, you know, data and statistics and probability and those kind of things. And I also think it's really important to be able to have a dog on a leash, even if they're you know, manners are really poor and be able to, with whatever tools you use, you know, a clicker or treats or, you know, or a, like a, a climb or whatever to be able to, to work with the dog and, and make things happen in a gentle, loving, you know, positive way. And I think that for me, I feel like the fact that I am certified as a trainer and certified as a behaviorist combined, I'm like, I'm, I'm really, I'm really proud of my education and my experience there and my science work. And I'm really proud of my dog training skills. Although sometimes when I watch myself in videos, I'm like, that is not something to be proud of. Like there's always room to improve, but um, you know, but I think both those things are, are really important. And uh, I mean, I think it, it takes a lot of work to educate yourself and it takes a lot of practice to be a trainer. Like I think about sometimes when I'm training and I'm teaching someone that's a true novice, you know, a client that they've had 20 dogs in their life and there's never really been an issue and their dog has a serious aggression problem and the dog knows how to sit and it knows its name. And it's like, okay, this is where we're starting. And that's yep. great. I'm so glad you called me, but this is where we're starting. And to be able to demonstrate and use and then explain about, you know, some very basics about training, like just because they can come in your living room doesn't mean they can come in the park, you know, when there's a squirrel, right? You know, or um, like, okay, well, they are, you know, they're, they just ate their dinner. They might not be as street motivated or, you know, this is how you need to use your voice. And this is how you need to use your body. And this is to do a short training session and set them up for success and choose the best treats. And like maybe toys or, you know, it's a lot of things and you're doing them all at once, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, um, I often think about um, like when I do any kind of educational thing, like something that's really well done in a lot of cases, for example, is like CPR training. Like it has to be perfect. You can't be like, whoops, a daisy. We didn't get it right. You know, it's like, oh, the dog didn't high five. Okay. But like CPR and how they train and they teach you and how they repeat and how they, it's like some of the most beautiful education, sometimes a little tedious because it's a lot of repetition, but you got to get it right. I think that's the level I'd love to get to with clients, but it's so complex. Like the dog's yeah. different and the, you know, just to so all the things, you know. Um, so exactly. I, I think it's really nice to be able to, to um, really be proud as dog trainers of the practice that we put in to get dog training skill. Nobody, nobody, I think a lot of people feel like, oh, it's so easy. Like, oh, everybody knows dogs because everybody loves dogs. It's like, it's a lot of skill there. And I'm proud to be a part of the community where we work on never perfecting that, but aiming towards as close as we can get to perfection. And practicing And a new, um, I use a lot of analogies when I'm working with my clients and a new analogy that, um, I use for that practice purpose that we keep practicing, even when we know what we're doing, that CPR kind of helps me think about that is, you know, when the football player, uh, I forget his first name, Hamill, cause I didn't watch it, but you know, he had his heart stops on the football field. Then they save him and he's alive. And he's, you know, doing good. He's, he's doing okay. Now. Um, when I watched a research, um, somebody talking and interviewing, they said, you know, one thing about the NFL is at, before every single game, before the stands are filled, before the football players are even there, their emergency care team is on the field every, before every single game. And they practice what to do if someone's heart stops, what to do in all these emergencies that are emergencies. And that's one of, it's a new example that I've been giving people of like, these people are doctors and nurses and EMTs and like, they're skilled in that, but they still show up before every single game and practice their emergency action so that it's a reflex when it happens, the handful of times that they've actually needed it there's no hesitation and that's where i'm trying to teach people like that's why we ask you to repeat and practice yeah your dog knows sit but 
you got to keep working on it. You can't just say, oh, they Tom sit. I'm not going to do it for five years and then expect them to be able to be good five years later. So that's I completely that agree with that. And I use analogies a lot too. And one of the things I've often said over the years is that some of my favorite and most um, dedicated and most successful clients are musicians and dancers and athletes because they know you have to practice. Mm-hmm. And I was actually recently, um, maybe, well, probably wasn't that recently, like a year and a half ago or something. I worked with a client who plays the piano and I was talking about how, okay, before you take your dog on a walk, ask for a couple watches, ask for a couple sits. And he's like, oh yeah, I've been doing that. He's like, I call it doing my scales with my dog. Cause it's like, okay, it's a concert pianist, but he practices his scales every day. I'm a terrible musician. I mean, I took, I'm comically unmusical, but I took piano for four years as a kid. And you know what? I can still play the scales. Like that's, you know, like a C major scale, nothing, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But But like, it's what I'm saying is it's simple. Like I can do it. I'm terrible and I can do it. And, but yet these musicians, that are, you know, this is their life, they're professionals, they still do it. And I think the idea of practice is so, is so underrated in society. There's sort of this magical idea about like, oh, he took to it like a duck. Or if you go to like a kid's sporting event, someone will be like, this is his first year playing and he's this good. It's like, okay, that's good. It's amazing. He obviously has some talent, but like, let's see him with some practice too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you can't, exactly. you can't, uh, you can't get away from the practice. For sure. So, well, I was super excited. Has it been a year now that your book came out? I'm um, treat everyone like a dog. Has it been that long? I kind of lose track with COVID. Like if it was, it came out during COVID. 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 Um, yeah, it came out during COVID. So yeah, it's all blurry. So you're fine. <laughs> exactly. So I knew I, but I was super excited to see it. So tell us a little bit about like, tell us a little bit about the book and like what prompted you to even, you know, write this book. Cause there are so many, I mean, I've written a book, there's so many dog books out there. And so sometimes at least for me as an author, I'm always like, oh, well, you know, um, Kathy Sudeo has already done that. So like, I don't need to write about that. And she's got a great book. So I'll just refer that. Or, you know, um, Sophia Yin has a great puppy book. So like, why recreate the wheel? But what prompted you to want to write this book? Oh, well, thank you so much for mentioning it. I love to talk about it. It's my baby. Um, <laughs> so I think that whatever we do in our professional lives bleeds into our personal life and like, you know, back and forth. And an example I often give is my, when my husband and I bought our first house, we bought it from a woman who was a legal secretary and, uh, the house was perfect. I mean, like the, the, when we, we went to the closing for it and she said, I do have a confession to make about the house. And I'm like, Oh no, I'm thinking like (laughs) cracked foundation or like, you know, asbestos. And she's like, she lived in the house for 17 years. She's like, there were a couple of times when I didn't change the furnace filter on the first of the month, <laughs> you know, <laughs> secretary and she dots her eyes and crosses her T and my husband and I moved in and we're like, well, this is great. The house is only going to, we take care of things by the way, but it's only going to decay in the time we own it. Like, <laughs> well, cause, because you don't have the time for that, like anal personality part, you know, cause you have kids and you've got to work and stuff, but you yeah, I mean, we didn't even have kids yet, but that's just not who we are. Like we take exactly. care of things, but it's like, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like, you know, anyway. So, um, and I feel like in that, the way she's a legal secretary in that mindset and that care and that precision and that nothing can, can fall through the cracks kind of mindset. I'm that way as a dog trainer, I'm always thinking like about things like, how can I make this easier for them? How can I make this happen? How can I set this up? Is, is the individual like prepared for this? Like, you know, like every morning when my kids were in elementary school and junior high, there are often things I needed to say to them, but I was like, are they in the emotional mental state to hear this right now? Or should I wait for another time? You know, it's to me, that's thinking like a dog trainer. And when it really came to a head and my kids are, I have a senior in high school and a freshman in college. They're um, 17 and well, 17, well, almost 18 and 19 and a half, I guess. And, um, and one day when they were like two and three, and I was so tired, I can't even, even tell you they're 20 months apart. And my husband, and I didn't sleep for four years. I mean, they were, it was just, it, we were just like, 
crazy with lack of sleep. Yeah. And <laughs> yes. I mean, just like, and, and some people, when they, they like, don't sleep, they get like a little, you know, kind of just like, they're a little duller intellectually or what I do is I just get irritable, you know? And yeah. so anyway, my kids, you know, we had a bin for their shoes because, you know, little kids shoes get lost all the time. And then we were head, trying to head to the park or something and meeting people and their shoes were to the bins. And I'm like, why aren't your shoes in the bin? Like, what is going on? What you're supposed to put them there. And my kids got kind of wide eyed and they look kind of scared. And like, and I'm, I don't as a rule, like yell at my children. I mean, mm -hmm. but I was just like, not at my best. And I was yelling and they looked scared. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, if a dogs didn't do what I wanted them to do, I would never be like, what's wrong with you? I'd be like, okay, like, how can we recreate the situation? How can we backtrack? How can we train? How can we set this up for success? And I feel like I owed them at the very least my own children, you know, who I love obviously more than anything, the love and respect that I give to dogs on the daily in my work. And, um, and really I worked on it for like a, just a couple of weeks of thinking about like how to do things like that. And, and I like, haven't yelled at them since. And I, I remember one time one of my sons was like, oh yeah. One of his friends was like, oh, your mom never yells. Like most parents. He's like, oh yeah, my mom hasn't yelled at us in like five years. Like, I mean, I still reserve the right to yell like, okay, you guys come on, dinner's ready. Or like, watch out, you know, but not, yeah. that's different. Like, I mean, I'm still loud. Totally. <clears throat> Cause I mean, I'm a very loud person. If I said I never yell, I know people wouldn't believe, but I don't yell at them. And, um, yeah. and so that's kind of the moment that the book, um, like, you know, kind of the idea formed in my mind, but it was sort of seven years later in a pandemic when I had time at home that I ended up writing it. And it's, it's just, it's all the ways that I have taken what I know from dog training, whether it's asking the question, what would success look like? Because like, say somebody wants to improve their grade in a class, like a, you know, like a neighbor or something, we're talking about this. And it's like, the kid's getting a C and, they, and, the, and they, they need to get better grades and the parent wants them to get A and the kid's like, I just want to get a B minus. You know what I mean? Like what uh -huh. does success look like? You have to decide. It's like, is your goal to be able to take your aggressive dog out on walk safely or is your goal to have it be a therapy dog? Cause that's going to be harder. And may never, totally. not gonna happen. totally. Um, and so it's just, it's just everything like noticing that when my kids had strep throat, they were weepy and understanding, oh, the behavior problem comes from a medical issue. That's so, you know, it's like, I think that if I suspect that I refer you know, I think about when I, when I delivered my mom's eulogy, I use like back chaining principles to practice the end. So I was always getting into more familiar territory. So it's, and obviously positive reinforcement and making it a game and using classical conditioning. And like, I taught my kids, um, certain things when I realized that like, okay, there's problems as a parent, like, okay, I got to keep them safe in the parking lot and in the driveway and just everywhere. And and I mean, I, I'm not a paranoid person in general, but for years I said to my kids, okay, it's a parking lot. Be careful. Trust no one, you know, like, just, <laughs> I mean, just completely, you know, crazy. And I taught my kids a behavior called stick close, which meant walk on my left side. Dog <laughs> trainers would call this heel, but I didn't call it heel because I don't want the other mommies at the park to look at me funny, but I called it stick close. And that's exactly what it was. And I have video of up and on a blog, I wrote about it. And I mean, the kids are doing their thing and, you know, and just like, I felt like, well, I need to keep them safe. Just like I need to keep a dog safe. I've solved this problem before. So it's basically all the problems, you know, like my male roommate that kept his, the toilet seat up. It's like, I use dog training principles for that. You know I mean? So just everything is, is all about dog, dog trainers know how to influence behavior, how to teach people things and how to get people to do things. And I just, the whole book is basically about all the ways I've used those things in real life. So it's a lot of examples and a lot of stories. And um, that every is... one of my kids has been proof. Like I read it to them, all the parts that mentioned them. So in case anyone's it's... like, how could you write this about our kids? It was approved. Yeah, that is so funny because that reminded me, you know, because I'm the same way. I I integrate a lot of my dog to my kids. And and um, <clears throat> when my kids were small, I had three that were, and my daughter is my oldest, but she well, we didn't know she had autism then, but we knew she had cerebral palsy. So she sometimes had to be in a stroller. She was low tone. 
you know, even when my younger ones say we're kind of stronger than her. So we get out and I'm by in the Target parking lot by myself with three kids. So I get them each out of the car seat and I said, hands on the car. So they totally look like they're getting arrested. Yeah, <laughs> but, no, but you're, they, you're having them target. Like it's exactly. brilliant. Yeah. I, I just told them you have to touch the car until I get everybody out and then hold every, and everybody had to hold hands, you know, until we got to where we went. So when you said that, it's so funny because that's exactly what I, um, I did. And, um, and we do, yeah, I use it great. and I use positive reinforcement once. I had to pick up payroll for my employee and um, it used to be really close. The office was really no big deal. Well, they moved it across this bridge and this sounds so silly, but I hated crossing the bridge. There's traffic that merging on and off the freeway is not like the greatest intersection. So when they moved it, I was mad. I was like, why did you move your office? Can't, if you moved it, why don't you deliver it? Like I got really frustrated. So I had to like rethink and put myself in a different perspective. And there's a Starbucks right by this place. And I don't, I'm not somebody who goes to Starbucks every day. So I told myself, every time you pick up payroll, you get a Starbucks. And I did that. Now I don't even care about crossing that bridge. It's totally just, I trained myself with positive reinforcement, how to do something really difficult. And I love that you have a book that kind of helps with those stories. Cause I think that helps people put things in reality when it's more stories than just, this is how you train your dog, or this is what you should do. So. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned the coffee and I don't drink coffee a lot because my personality is already a little bit caffeinated, even, you know, without it. And so I, I'm cautious, but I had to go to this meeting for a board I was on many years ago and I didn't really like it. It just, it just, I liked everyone in the group, but the particular way that all the personalities interacted together, I just didn't find it as socially pleasant as each of those wonderful individual people, but we met at a coffee shop and and I normally, like I said, don't drink coffee, but I would get like, you know, a big mocha or latte or something. And I started to look forward to the meeting, you know, and, and I'd be really excited, like after like, hey, let's work on this, let's do that. And I was like, well, first of all, I'm extra caffeinated, so I'm all jazzed. But, um, but I also realized like, I, I, in that case, I feel like, because it was a little bit, I didn't do it consciously. I I'd classically conditioned myself, but not on purpose mm -hmm. to be like, okay, well, this meeting equals coffee. This meeting hundred percent predicts coffee. So, you know, I started to like it once I was aware of it, you know, I, I often wondered how it would feel. And it's so interesting. Like there's a lot of theoretical questions about whether we can positively reinforce ourselves because, you know, you could go get Starbucks without having to cross the bridge. So, but, but I, but, but this is what I think. And I'm so curious to what you think, because I understand that theoretically we can't positively reinforce ourselves because we have the ability to give ourselves those desired, you know, like primary reinforcers if we choose. But to me, if I withhold it, except when I get this, it, it functions like positive reinforcement. Like I, that's yeah. myself a lot and, and maybe technically speaking, scientifically, that's not right. But if it functions, like I'm interested in behavior change, I'm, I'm only interested in theory in that sense to the degree that it helps me influence the behavior that I want, including my own. So do you know what I mean though, about how it's totally, like, yeah, because I'm, but and the thing is, is, you know, I have a limited budget, so I don't go to Starbucks all the time. So, and I think it is, it's a funny thing. Cause I do, I might positively reinforce myself cause I could get a Starbucks, but I don't. And, um, but, and I actually, I mean, I like Starbucks. Okay. But obviously I don't like it so much that I crave it, that I go every you know day because I crave it. But there was something about the way I was, I think in some ways, now that I'm thinking about this, which I've never actually thought about this before, but I was like giving myself a treat. It was almost like I was giving myself some self-care, even though, you know, that I wouldn't have done otherwise, but it really did change how I feel about going over that bridge. And I hated going over that bridge for other things too. Now, mm -hmm. if they say go to that city, because 
you're familiar with my area. So I'm in Ventura. It's just going to Oxnard. It is not a far city. It's not far. But there's something about that bridge that really, um, I don't even know what was my aversion to it. But by telling myself I could get to Starbucks. And then what I noticed is sometimes I was in a hurry. I'm like, oh, I don't have time for the Starbucks. It's fine. But I didn't have any negative emotion anymore about going to that office. Um, so like you said, whatever, however it worked, it worked. And, and I think at least for me, and I think you would probably agree with this is that's the same thing with our dogs. Like maybe, you know, at one of my lab laughing and smiling is a huge reinforcer for him. You know, I didn't like think about it. I didn't plan it, but sometimes we just got to see what works. You know, it, it doesn't, even if the theory doesn't quite, we can't, oh, well, this is classical edition. This is operant. This is positive reinforcement. This is negative reinforcement. If we get too bogged down in all of that science, I think we lose the art. And that's what I love is a lot of people say art and science of training. We have to do that art to get the goal we want in the end. Does that kind of make sense to you? Yeah, I completely agree. And when I worked for Trisha McConnell, I think the motto of the business, and I'm probably misspeaking it a little bit, but it was something like, you know, um, well, I think it was like, we train you to train your dog, but it was also something about the art, the science and the sport of dog training, because we weren't talking about sport, like fly ball and agility, but just because you're physically moving your body, you know, it's almost like a dance. Um, totally. but I, I really think, I mean, I'm a big believer in don't argue with success. Um, you know, if it works and I have often found like something, it's like, say you're trying to classically condition a dog to be comfortable seeing a person down the block. So you see the person and then they get the treat. It has to be in that order. But I have found so often, if you give the dog a treat first, and then they see the person and then give the treat after they need the treat after for it to be classical conditioning. It works. And I don't know whether it, it cues them. They're like, okay, you know, that, that we're going to be doing this, but I often think just putting a dog in a good mood and, and, or maybe they just like know that you have the treats on you, although they probably know anyway, but I often find like treat trigger treat works. And theoretically, you know, like I'd be slayed alive, you know, totally. <laughs> but if you I, try like, to say that on a, in a scientific paper. Yeah. You would. Yeah. Cause I it, agree. Yeah. It, it just fine. And I mean, and here's what I think about it. Sometimes I'll try that with a dog, especially if they're, you know, like the dog that can get within 10 or 20 feet of a person before mm-hmm. they're over threshold that, that I don't need it. Then I'm talking about when it's like the dog is locked and loaded and I'm like, okay, I have like 20, 20 vision. I can just barely make out the person down the block, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, I'll just try it. And I feel like either it helps, or I just don't see how it can do any harm, you know? So, exactly. I mean, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm definitely like, um, you know, uh, always willing to give a dog an extra treat if it's going to do no harm and it might help. <laughs> sure. I mean, that's one thing that I always love about, you know, um, I love Kathy Sedeo's book, you know, everything in life is free. You know, I just love that, that nothing in life free idea is so restrictive and yeah, so what I give them an extra treat. Sometimes I want an extra cookie. Like, you know, does that make me a bad person because I want two Oreos instead of one? No. And why should we like put those restrictions on our dogs? So, and that kind of gets me to that. So, um, so, and we've kind of talked about this. So your book is like, obviously encouraging positive reinforcement and stuff, but it's not necessarily like a training like this is how you do it. Um, how do you kind of incorporate that with it being a positive, you know, like, would you have, like, just talk about a little bit about positive reinforcement stuff and, and how they use their training when they're reading this book. Cause sometimes people need that science part. They need the like, well, A plus B equals C, you know, they need the ABCs cause they can't think by this, but I love how we're talking in your book is filling in like, almost like if ABCs are the brick, your book is like the mortar, like the in-between, the emotion that goes in between all those. And um, how do you incorporate the positive reinforcement in your book, um, but not as a study guide, if that makes sense? I mean, are you asking how I explain things in the book? Yeah, or? yeah. Kind of how do you explain, you know, positive reinforcement? I mean, 
I really think I do it a lot with, with, you know, examples. So I'm going to talk about before my family went and spent a semester in Costa Rica because my husband was teaching at a university there. I wanted to teach my kids as much Spanish as possible and they were not super into it. And I'm, I speak Spanish, but I'm not a native speaker. So I didn't speak it with my kids growing up except for a few words. So I was, you know, I would use like chocolate chips, like, you know, like as literally like treats. So I'm going to talk about things like that. Or I would talk about, um, you know, if you want your spouse to, you know, to, to call you at work, if they do it, you know, do something reinforcing for them. So like really, like sort of obvious examples of ways that we can do it in our life. And one of the things I think that, I guess I'm a little bit on a soapbox about it. I think sometimes, and this happens all the time with dogs, people don't reinforce because the behavior wasn't as fast as they want. So you call your dog to come, they run around a tree, sniff at a spot and then come to you. It's like, they still came to you. I mean, if, if, if what you're trying to work on is speed, then okay, then you got to set it up. So only the fastest ones get it, but don't withhold the reinforcement because, you know, they, they were sort of lazy. Because it wasn't perfect. Like, yeah. Because it wasn't perfect. Right. And I think with recalls, it happens a lot. Um, and I think with, with people, it can happen too, where people, you know, like somebody, you, know, you might, especially in like the morning, if people are tired and you ask them something and then they're like really slow to respond and they finally respond. And instead of saying like, oh, thanks. Cause that's the information I needed. Someone will say something like, oh, thanks for finally responding. You know, that's not reinforcing that's snarky. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think about reinforcement a lot in terms of how it can be used and misused. And one of my favorite examples is like, I like to know with my son, who's still at home in high school, like generally where he's going and when he's coming back. Like if he's taking the car out, you know, we had over five feet of snow. It could be a little icy. I kind of want to know that if he doesn't come home at some reasonable time, at least where I should, you know, in that paranoid way of all parents, where if you don't hear from them, you're sure they're, you know, in a ditch, like where (laughs) we should start the search. Um, But what I never want to do is have a curfew. And the reason I don't want to have a curfew is that if you give kids curfews, like very specific, like I, my kids have some friends who it's like, if they're home at, you know, midnight, that's fine. If they're home at 1203, they're in trouble. And it's like, what does that reinforce? That reinforces speeding, driving home fast to get home in time. Like all I want is like, okay, if you said you were going to be home around midnight and you suddenly know you're going to be home around 130, shoot me a text. Hey mom, we're running late. I'm thinking of coming home at this time. Like, yeah. I'm always going to try to say yes, because I want to reinforce the behavior of keeping me totally. in the loop. Because oh, I don't necessarily I... think that my kids love it, that I want to know. Um, and you know, here we might have like just a, a generation gap. Like I'm sure it's reasonable for them that they don't want to necessarily share where they are all the time. And I feel like when they're living in my house, I mean, like my colleagues, I don't worry about them because it's not someone else's watch. Totally. When, he just home, when he was just home over the winter break, then I'm like, where are you going? Whose house? Like, what's up? You know, just, you know, um, and my, my kids have been really reasonable about it, but cause I try to say yes, as much as I can. Like mm-hmm. if they say like, um, you know, can I stay out till this time later? I'm always going to say yes, unless there's a really, really good reason. Like, you know what? We're about to get three more inches of snow in the next 20 minutes. So I need you home or something like that. Or if like they're outside playing basketball and I say dinner's ready and they say like, oh, we're just in the middle of a game. Can we finish up? I'm going to say yes, because I don't want to be all like where they see me coming out there and they're just like, oh, you know, and so, you know, and I want to be able to say like one time they were out and I was like, I need you guys to come inside right now. And they just came in. And, um, and, and they're like, what's up? And I was like, well, we just got a call from a neighbor of ours who was kind of in the know that like, there's somebody out like around in the neighborhood who's dangerous and armed and, you know, whatever. And it's like, okay, like I'm not messing around. Like you got it. And they came in. Cause I don't come and say, come inside right now. It's like twice in their life. They've been out playing basketball. And I'm like, you have to come in right now. Exactly. Yeah. It's totally, I just love it. I mean, I think it was parenting where the same, you know, have a lot of similarities too, where, you know, it's by the moment and, and trying to say yes, as much as possible. So, um, I don't want to take all of your morning, although I could talk to you forever. So what is something that you would like our listeners to 
know, like, do you have any like takeaway, you know, something that you really like them to know, whether it's about dog training or parenting or the book or, you know, cab, whatever you feel that would be a really good, something that your the listeners may, you know, benefit from like a little nugget. You know, something that I would really love to say is like, I often have clients come to me and say like, you know, like you're my last hope. I've like worked with, you know, four trainers or, you know, two behaviorists or whatever, yeah. or they'll come in and be like, or, or they might say like, I'm, um, you know, I also consulted with, you know, um, like a chiropractor. And I also consulted with another trainer and they kind of look like, Oh, is that okay? And I'm like, I'm always like, great. Like the more people on the team, the better. Like, I feel like I don't like any of the competition, like, Oh, they should see me. And I always say to people, like, I'm going to tell you what I, some suggestions that I think will be helpful. And of course I think they're the best suggestions. That's why I'm giving them to you. But <laughs> exactly. other people, you know, it's my own personal opinion, but, but, but you should take what you like from, from each person and, um, you know, that you get advice from, because nobody knows your dog or, or your relationship with your dog better than you. And it's like, if someone gives you advice, but it just doesn't feel right to you, you're not going to be able to do it. I want like, I'm giving you advice or, you know, ideas that I hope will resonate with you, but if they don't let me know. And, you know, and, and if someone else has ideas that seem to work better for you, I think that individuality is important. And I, I always feel like, um, like it's, it's kind of related to that is my job is to come up with a plan that people will do and that sits right with them and feels right for them. My plan is not to come up with, or my job is not to come up with a plan that like would work if they did it, you know, like, like sometimes I've seen plans of for all, it, and, you know, like, like I, I mean, I used to go have someone who cut my hair and she's like, Karen, it's just an hour. Like every day your hair could look beautiful. And I'm like, that's great. But like, what can you give me for an average of three and a half minutes? Because right. like, yeah, I mean, my best friend did my hair on my wedding day and she spent an hour on it. And that was in 1999. I don't know if I spent an hour on my hair since, you know, <laughs> and so, so I, you know, I love that. I had, I had that exact same thing. I, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday and I said, and and my clients, my private clients, it's like, what can you do? You can only do practice two things till I see you next. Okay. Then you have the overachiever person who wants 10 things and it's working with the individuals. I love, I love, love, love that. Yeah. I think working with the individual is a key thing. I often think about how everyone always is told to floss every day. And I remember, I think it was like 10 or 12 years ago. I noticed that my dentist and dental assistant were advising people like try to floss at least three times a day. It's like, of course they want you to floss once or twice a day, but they're at least figuring that like, okay, like do what you can, you know, exactly. I mean, exactly. Yeah. And I always feel like when I think about all the things I should be doing, like I should be changing my furnace filter every month and I should be like, you know, filing my nails all the time and I should be massaging my scalp. So my hair will grow faster. <laughs> and I should be like mopping my floors. Daily. It's like, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm, I kind of live in a general state. And I think most people do of sort of like, you know, if it's not on fire, I'm not putting it out just yet. <laughs> so like, and I mean, I'm an industrious, hardworking person that I care, but it's like, you know, it's like, you only have so much time. So I always try to, I mean, obviously there's some things with my clients. Sometimes I'm like, it is not safe for your dog to do like X, you know, like exactly. your dog cannot go to the dog park. And I'm really firm about it and really strong, but for the most part, I'm like, well, you know, what's going to work for you? Like, let's figure out, like, like I often say like, you know, I'd like for you to do this exercise, like, you know, twice daily for this amount of time. Like, can you commit to that? Like how many days a week do you think you could commit to that? Mm -hmm. A lot of people say five and it's like, yeah, I'd rather they do seven, but five's great. Totally. I have the same thing. I'm like, don't worry if they're stressing out, I don't have time to train. I'm like, well, what are you doing for training? And like, well, I can't get my 30 minutes in. And I'm like, who told you 30 minutes? 90 seconds, get... baby. 90 seconds. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, if you could get five minutes in, I'm like having a party. I had a client who I saw a couple of weeks ago that 
she's like, well, I didn't get a chance to practice. And her dogs, you could tell, I mean, her dogs told the story. She had been practicing. They were like different from when I had seen it before. And I'm like, well, tell me more about why you're not doing it right. And she starts like confessing that she didn't do every single thing. And I'm like, well, it's working. So keep doing what you're doing because it's working. So sometimes I think we're hard on ourselves with that. So I think that's a great piece of advice. So yeah, um, and I think it's just like reinforcing people. Like if someone comes to you and did five days a week, then you want to say, you know, click, 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 not like jab, jab, you didn't do it those two days. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I really, I really think, um, I think something that's interesting in our field is I think that our field with positive training, it's just had a revolution over the last few decades about being positive with the dogs. And I feel like we're a little bit behind on being so positive with the people. I totally um, agree. And I I have people who it's funny because I'll do interviews like this or, um, or even when my assistant would be communicating, you know, things like she'll put, when she was first doing social media for me, she'd put something and I'm like, you can't put that word there. And she's like, well, why? I'm like, because we'll get total backlash from the positive reinforcement client. And she's like, but there's supposed to be positive reinforcement. I'm like, there's a little delay on the human positive reinforcement side. Yeah. We're all a work in progress. Exactly. You know, but it's, it's a- at least we're moving in that right direction. I agree. You know, and I think it's, I mean, I think it's wonderful to see, um, you know, just how much positivity there is. Um, and I think actually, um, it's become more and more popular to be positive, which is nice. It I mean, is. I just really like, I, I mean, I just really, um, you know, like I'm kind of in three worlds. I'm a tiny bit in the academic world. I'm a lot in the behavior world. I'm a lot in the trainer world. And I feel like the trainer world with people who are not just positive um, as dog trainers, but positive as people, like you're clearly that way. Kathy Sadeo is clearly that mm-hmm. way. Um, Hannah Brannigan's that way. Yes. Um, Laura Monica Torelli, obviously Ken Ramirez. Like I love like that. Um, like I just love, you know, like being around the people that are like genuinely positive. About I love things. that too. I mean, all those people that you've mentioned, either I like stock or I know because of different, you know, things we've been involved in. And it is, I think it makes not only training like my job fun, because I'm like looking for the positive in both the people and the dogs. So I'm looking for positive rather looking their negative now. So it makes it more fun for me. I think it makes it more fun for my clients when they start having, you know, looking for their positive for their dog. And obviously the dog just benefits from all of that too. Definitely. And I think the whole idea of positivity, and this is something I talk about in my book, like how a dog trainer's worldview can improve your life is a subtitle. And one of the things that I've always done ever since I started TAing in grad school and then teaching uh, as a, as a lecturer at, at, at the university is if someone has a quiz or a test, I don't want it to be, I never mark it wrong. I'm never like minus two, minus one. And then it's like, and the way I think of it, it's like, okay, well, suppose you got in like an 83 on the exam. Then, and I'm telling you that like, you know, this exam was perfect till you screwed it up by missing 17 points. It's just like, doesn't match my whole philosophy. I always feel like the page is blank. You have a zero when I hand you this test mm-hmm. and then you try to add value to it. And it's my job, you know, that whole idea of catch your dog doing something right. It's my job to try to find someone like the queen of partial credit. Like, oh, well, I can see the kind of, you know, obviously they listened to that lecture. They knew this and, you know, might, might not be hundred percent correct, but so I'm always like, you know, plus one, plus three, plus seven. So it's like, you've added 83 points to this exam, the value of this exam with, with creativity, ingenuity, studying, maybe a little luck. I don't care if you got it on there, like uh, to find it. And I just feel like that whole idea of like looking for things that are being right. And I think it comes more naturally to some people than others. Like for example, um, my dad is a really amusingly positive person. And one of the times he visited me not long after my, um, 
my mom had died and I, and my mom used to do the laundry when their laundry when they came, but I was just doing some of his laundry and, uh, and uh, I was like, how was your trip? And he's like, everything was great. The food was great. The laundry service was exemplary. Like he's kind of saying it sarcastically, but it's true. Like he's appreciative <laughs> of that, you know, little thing. And then I used to work on Catalina Island teaching marine biology mm-hmm. uh, to in outdoor education. And one time we had these gale force winds and the tents tops were being blown off the tents and our roof of our like dining hall main area was leaking and we were like up all night with tarps on the roof it was quite terrifying trying to keep everyone safe trying to keep everyone dry and I was talking to the director who was a wonderfully kind person but she obviously was pretty it was pretty stressful and I was like well I think it all went pretty well and she looked at me like oh my god do you have six heads and I'm like well what I mean is what I was thinking before I said that which wasn't the same thing what I was thinking was like nobody got hurt and this group seems to be a pretty happy with their experience here and and she's like yeah that's not the same as like that went really well I'm like yeah fair you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I was just thinking, you know, trying to be positive and it is, it can be quite obnoxious, I guess. Exactly. And it is, I mean, I have my friends always say, you know, like I'll be going through something difficult and they're like, you always find a positive, like a silver lining. You know, like I'll be upset or I'll be frustrated. And then I can't stay in that place for very long because it doesn't feel good. And so then I'm like, okay, well, what's something good that happened even out of this big tragedy? And um, it's just, a, I find it a better way of life. And then it makes me it's easy for me to help or easier for me to help teach my clients how to change their perspective if I'm a good model for that. And it's not like I'm faking it. I mean, maybe at some point in my life, I was faking it till I make it, but it was already internally in me and it just was blossoming that, putting more highlight on it rather than, you know, because it's easy to be around negative people and get sucked into that. But now as I've gotten older, you know, you hit your forties and stuff and you start to go, I don't just want to be around that energy anymore you know, and then you surround yourself with more positive people, which then just brings more positivity to your life. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah, I definitely like that positivity. But I think we're all like works in progress. For example, here's an area where I could work in progress. Um, (laughs) My son plays basketball, and he is uh, very athletic, very fast, uh, not very tall. And so sometimes he jumps really high, like he can dunk, but he's like five, seven and a half. So sometimes he's up really high and his legs will get hit by someone. And when they don't call that foul, I'm just, Oh like, yes. <laughs> like I'm like, and, and like, I'm really like, I understand how hard it is to be a ref. And I understand there's like all these crazy things with parents thing, but like I, if I'm videotaping these games, which I often do so the team can watch film, like I, I don't complain about everything, but like every time that happens, I'm literally like, you'd think I'm like all signs of positivity are gone. Cause I'm like, how is that not a foul? <laughs> Well, my son plays water poles, the same thing, you know, someone gets drowned. can't see stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, wow, but you know, overall life, but there is, I mean, no one's perfect. I mean, this is the thing I'm currently working on. Like I swear someone's going to need to bring me like a lot of chocolate truffles to a basketball game because that is just hard for me again, um, but I'm generally pretty positive. (laughs) Well, Karen, I, like I said, I could talk to you all day. I just think this is so fabulous. Thank you so much for being on today with us. And I hope that our listeners really start to see different perspectives, especially if this is all new, maybe positive reinforcement's new, maybe thinking about feelings and, you know, how things affect or, or not following the rules perfect, you know, and, but what works. So I really just enjoy everything we talked about. Hopefully people will check out your book and we'll put a link down um, on this so that um, they will know how to get to it. And, um, but I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. It is my absolute pleasure. I would love to talk to you anytime. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening and um, check out um, Karen's book.